I'm officially having coffee and it is officially great. My coffee is over already. It's, it's already empty. Yeah, I'm sad. Yeah, mine's empty too. You just had the one? We hit the record button a little too fast. But that's why I brought the whiskey, actually. Okay, well, <laughs> there <good>. we go. <laughs> what time is it out there? <laughs> well, it's almost 4.30 in the afternoon, so I'm allowed to have a glass oh. of whiskey. Okay, yeah, he's allowed. <laughs> yeah, Josh, you and, I are, you and I are beginning our days, so it's... <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. I'd like a glass of whiskey, though. That would feel good. <laughs> it's actually a pretty old bottle that was in, in, the, in the bar in my par at my parents' house. It's a really old one. It's a really creepy one. It's called uh, Ye Monks, I think. I don't, I don't think it's sold anymore, at least here in Spain. Pro you can probably still find it elsewhere. Uh, yeah, in some other country. But here, I've never ever seen it before. What makes the bottle creepy? Because there's a picture of a monk on it. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of started talking about this in our Slack channel, right? When we were talking about Marius choosing a a photography system. Isn't that where this kind of started? I think so, probably. It's all my fault. In a way. Right. And if you guys thought that the, the bag topic was controversial, wait for this one, because this is going to be also... I, I have a feeling this is going to be even worse, but we're going we're gonna to do our best to be politically correct or not, as, <laughs> as the situation calls for. So, um, Marius, you have been looking at multiple camera systems going forward because you need have you're looking to change you're looking to invest into a single one and although all uh Alvaro and i have been uh, we've had our eye on sony or any of these mirrorless systems you keep bringing up this the fact that there's you know this technology called a dslr camera yeah it's weird man it is weird i don't know i, I never even considered the thought in my mind but it's real and there's a lot of people out there who still feel that these things are um legitimate tools they are legitimate tools, I guess. I should be careful. <laughs> You're already uh, inviting <laughs> problems here, Josh. <laughs> but um, long story short is like we, there's strengths and weaknesses on both sides of this argument. We really should go through them in order to give people an idea of what uh, of what they're getting into on you know which which camera they go with, which system they go with, which type of camera they go with. Right, and the problem today is that there's so much uh, buzz in the industry about mirrorless technology and everybody's saying that it's the future, that it's super cool, but it's important to understand, if, especially if you're a newcomer to, to the world of photography, uh, that these are basically fundamentally different systems and one of them is not inherently better than the other. It depends a whole lot on the, the type of photographer that you are or hope to become and the the needs that you have, the particular needs that you have, uh, you know, depending on your shooting style and the type of photography that you do. So this is definitely worth getting into, and, and we're going to try to explain the differences between both systems, what makes a, a mirrorless camera, and what are the strengths of mirrorless technology versus uh, what are the defining aspects of DSLR technology and the reasons that... Uh, make it so popular even today after uh, many decades of, of use it's still by far the most popular uh, technology in, in in the industry so by far yeah. based on just graphs that you can see every now and then by far the most popular right if you count numbers absolutely there are still way more dslr users out there and dslr sales still are uh, a lot bigger than mirrorless sales although the trend is starting to change but but yeah, so it's not as clear cut as you could, um, as you could maybe think, if you if you're just reading a popular website about photography. And sometimes we 
we tend to paint a picture that is not always uh, very representative of the truth, actually. So we're going to try to write that wrong here today. Fingers crossed. Let's uh, let's talk about the actual technologies themselves. So we've we've got our mirrorless systems, which is the newer technology, and as the name suggests, it is lacking a mirror. But you might not actually know what mirror we're talking about here. So um, if you bear with me, we're going to try and very quickly explain um, what exactly is happening inside your DSLR camera um, and why a mirrorless system is different. So. Inside your standard DSLR, you've got obviously your lens and you've got your image sensor. But in between those two, you actually have a mirror which projects the light coming in through the lens upwards into the viewfinder. You know, the, the standard DSLR form factor has got that, that nice um, clean looking viewfinder up at the top, lets you see what the camera sees. Um, but of course, in order to do that, because the viewfinder is above the lens, you need this mirror to kind of bounce the light around and let you see what you're looking at. The actual shutter process of, of taking a photo requires that that mirror be flipped out of the way to allow the light coming in through the lens to hit the imaging sensor and actually record the image, which means that on any DSLR, when you click the shutter button, the viewfinder goes blank because obviously your source of light there is being interrupted. Um, so of course, on a mirrorless camera, that whole mechanism does not exist. So any viewfinder on a mirrorless camera is going to be usually a, an electronic viewfinder, which means that you're actually seeing exactly what the camera is seeing. You are seeing a vision of what the sensor is recording at that given moment, which is pretty helpful because it, it allows the camera manufacturer to give you a whole bunch of like um, focus peaking and other um, assistance type tools, which are not really possible um, or, or not very easy to provide uh, with a standard mirror setup in a DSLR. Um, but yeah, I think fundamentally that's that's the difference and that's where the mirror comes into the equation. Really well done, Marius. Like, great explanation. I learned something today. I'm on a podcast about photography and I'm a host and I didn't know some of this stuff. For me, it's also important to, to explain why the mirror was there in the first place. And the, the key advantage that, that mirror... Uh, the SLR technology, because there wasn't, they weren't digital back when the mirror was invented. Uh, the main advantage that the mirror brings to the table is that it allows the user to see exactly the same thing that the uh, the sensor or back then the film uh, would see. So you're you're seeing exactly the same as as your lens is projecting onto the sensor, basically. And back then, the alternative was to use a rangefinder style camera. Uh, which doesn't have a mirror, and the, the viewfinder is separate, is uh, slightly misaligned with the light coming into the into the film. So you would get uh, a slight error. Uh, you wouldn't see the same thing through the viewfinder as would eventually be recorded on your on your on your film or to, in today's technology on your digital sensor. Uh, and that's it's. I mean, there are ways to work around that because you get different frame lines on the viewfinder and so on. But another problem of rangefinder-style range cameras is that the longer the lens you use, the smaller area of the viewfinder you're effectively using. And it, it gets harder and harder to uh, nail focus as you go longer, uh, which can be a problem for some people. So so are rangefinders effectively a third group in, in, in this argument? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, they are. They're just kind of not as popular these days as they used right. to be. So it's not really a category that most people are going to encounter as they're making a decision for, you know, a camera body to buy. Um, and chances are, if you are aware of the rangefinder styling, you, you probably know why you want one. Um, it's, right. it's not really the kind of technology that you, you stumble upon. You've got to sort of be looking for it. Because again, if you, if you walk into your average camera store today, you probably have to do a little asking around before you find any rangefinder style cameras. Well, like as are all rangefinder cameras, except for the newest SL. Exactly. Yeah, that's the the main. Right. It's, it's the brand that defined the whole the whole uh, uh, sector of uh, the whole t- technology. I would say. Yeah. So I think one one way to um, define mirrorless technology today in practice would be to say that it's kind of an, a hybrid between a rangefinder style camera and a DSLR. Because you effectively get the best of, wo- of both worlds. You get a camera that is more compact than a DSLR because there's no mirror and you don't have to provide space for the mirror to be there. But you also get all the benefits of being able to see through the lens. Uh, and that's what DSLRs give you or used to give you. So with a mirrorless, with a modern uh, mirrorless digital camera, you get both of those advantages. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the mirror was just a way to get around a limitation of uh, of technology that was available decades ago, which is that there was no way to sort of use the same light to capture the image and to show the user back then. But with today's digital sensors, you can do just that. Your sensor is able to capture all that light, all that information, and display it uh, using an electronic viewfinder. So you can you can do both things using the same the same sensor, which you couldn't do before. And that's what mirrorless technology has unlocked for for modern photography. And I think that's a huge leap for the industry. And yeah, the early years are always harder because uh, electronic viewfinders uh, are not as good as optical viewfinders. And they're getting there, but they're still laggy a little bit. And resolution might not be as high as as you would want. But uh, I think a few years into the mirrorless uh, world, we're starting to see electronic viewfinders that are really, really good. And maybe even better than optical viewfinders in some in some situations. Right, and that the the difference in technology there as mirrorless cameras have caught up, like that's created a pessimism around mirrorless cameras just in general, right? That they're a second class kind of of system that no professional or or anybody who's serious about ta- doing photography would ever buy, right? Like there's a, an immense pessimism even today about about that. Right, but every new format, every new technology has to contend with the established sure. way right, to do things, right. right? I mean, remember back when the CD was released, uh, the all the audio enthusiasts will were scream in terror because their beloved vinyls were going to be, uh, you know, obsolete soon, and they still claim that the vinyl was a lot better. And well, hey, even even film versus digital, I mean, within the sphere of photography, even it's exactly the same struggle. Um, But I think, I think you touched on why this is such a sore point for some people, because you essentially from our perspective as, as people who have maybe straddled the, the two generations of camera technology from a DSLR and sometimes even earlier from film and into the mirrorless realm um, to us, the mirrorless systems look like the future because they are, in a sense, the natural progression of photographic technology. So we look at it and we say, yeah, it's it's clearly only a matter of time before they entirely supplant their DSLR brethren. Um, and that's sort of an uncomfortable claim to make because it requires that you 
um, not necessarily give up on, but you relinquish superiority of this this system that's so entrenched and so um, is is really at the heart of what made photographic technology what it is today. Uh, and it's hard to sort of leave that behind, even if it is the right decision in the long run. And the big question and the big reason I think that people have been disillusioned recently is that they actually came at this with excitement. They said, oh, look, finally, this technology that's better than DSLR, because even on paper, when you think about how it works, the mechanism makes more sense. Like, why would I want to bounce light around instead of just seeing what the camera sees? Right. It's it just it's a natural thing. But I think when people adopted it early on before mirrorless systems um, matured, they were disappointed and they were right to be because the technology was really not ready at that point to take over a lot of professional workflows and even casual workflows. You were making a lot of compromises. Um, so if if someone was trying to switch early on, they might have been very disappointed. Um, exactly. And sort of left with a, a bad taste in their mouth, which makes it a little more difficult for them to try again, even though today their experience might be entirely different. Exactly. And in a consumer uh, at a consumer level, the pain of the early adopter is something bearable because your life's not depending on it. But if you're a professional and your bread and butter literally depends on being able to take pictures with your camera the way that you want to, then no wonder you're not going to be uh, risking all that just to adopt a new technology that promises to be better in some in some aspects. I mean, it's entirely understandable that there's always going to be resistance from a certain group of photographers and they're doing the right thing, actually. But the question, I believe, is not whether mirrorless is better than DSLR. Uh, the question is, is it better yet? Because in my mind, there's no doubt that mirrorless eventually will be the future of photography. It will, it, it, will, it will end up being better and DSLRs are on their way out. Uh, I don't think there's any remaining reason or technical reason uh, why mirrorless couldn't be better, you know, given... given uh, the progression uh, that we're seeing with the technology. People complain about a whole lot of things like autofocus performance, battery life, raggedness and all of that. But all those are technical challenges that are going to get solved pretty soon, I would say. Bold claim, shots fired. Well, it's, there's no reason they <laughs> couldn't be. I mean, it's not like you're, uh, you're not facing uh, a physical law that is impossible to get around of. You know what I mean? Right. Well, there's one obsession among camera manufacturers who are um, developing these mirrorless bodies that I think they have to shrug off before um, before we can really move forward with this discussion as an industry, and that is the obsession with size. Exactly. Um, I think that early on, mirrorless systems, their main advantage, the main thing that you could say that they held over DSLR systems is that they were more compact. Um, and that's a great selling point. But now we're kind of past that because cameras in general have been um, made smaller and there are ways around the the um, the size angle but more importantly there's more to a camera's appeal than how big or how heavy it is and in many cases people prefer the heft of a dslr it just feels more secure it feels like especially if you're shooting handheld you can get more stability right but the point is that for now camera manufacturers who are making mirrorless systems tend to lean very heavily on this notion of, oh, I've, you know, ours is smaller than the DSLR equivalent. And I, I think that's got to go because personally, I like in many cases, especially for a professional system, I like the heft of a DSLR setup. And yes, it might not be great for travel, you know, shout out to our last episode. 
Um, but in a in a professional scenario, that's that's really not your main concern. And the the ruggedness angle, especially, is something that's much easier to it's a it's a promise that's easier to fulfill when you have a sturdier, larger body. So what I would like to see is for manufacturers like Sony, like Fuji, you know, these guys who are at the forefront of current mirrorless technology, I want to see them exploring larger form factors that maintain the mirrorless technology. Because I think that's where true professional grade mirrorless cameras are going to enter the market. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And there's a very good reason why the the industry is playing it this way, I would say. Uh, if you think about it early on when you're trying to create a new system based on new technology from scratch that is, uh, you know, by design incompatible with everything that came before it, um, you have a very a very complicated challenge to to overcome, which is that you have nothing. You don't have any lenses. You don't have any cameras. You have to start literally from scratch. So it's impossible to convince professional users to switch, or, or, or at least it is extremely difficult to convince professional users to switch because they need a wide variety of, uh, of options to be able to, uh, you know, to work, to get, the, to get work done. So uh, I think it's uh, very understandable that early on their target user was not the professional photographer, it was the consumer. The consumer that was trying to get a better camera than their smartphone or than their, their compact point and shoot. And, and in order to persuade those consumers to, to choose a mirrorless camera, uh, the size and weight factor is a very attractive proposition, I would say. So I, I completely understand. Yeah, I completely understand why they focused on those aspects early on because it's one of the main differences that mirrorless technology makes possible versus DSLRs. But now we're seeing as as those manufacturers have grown their lens lineup and have improved their cameras with several iterations, we're now starting to see that their ambition is pushing them to go after the professional user. And that's the logical way that te technology evolves, right? So right. I think it's absolutely... Uh, likely that we're going to see bigger mirrorless bodies from different manufacturers and focusing on more high-end professional features like super robust bodies and weather sealing and, and and all of that and much improved battery life. I think uh, I would have expected it to, to arrive sooner, but I think it's inevitable and we're going to start seeing it. We're going to start seeing it pretty soon. And on the flip side, right, um, we're talking about camera bodies, but lenses are kind of governed by physics and they do need to be larger, right? So in the end, um, there's still room for these larger camera bodies when the lenses themselves, like the these Sony G Master lenses are perfect proof that no matter the size of the camera body or the mirrorless versus DSLR argument, the lenses themselves are still gonna be larger too, depending on you know what format you're shooting. Exactly. But it wouldn't make any sense to release those lenses. You know, if those lenses had been the first uh, Sony lenses for the A7 series cameras, it wouldn't have made any sense because those are lenses that only a limited number of people are ever going to consider buying. So you have to push out the lenses that have the best chance of being massively popular first because that's what makes the system viable economically, you know? And right. then once right. you get that, once you can afford to continue to invest in developing more niche lenses, that's that's the logical course of action. And that's what Sony's has done in these past few years, and Fuji as well, and all, all of those guys have followed kind of a very similar blueprint, I would say. 
So why don't we dig into a little bit of the, I mean, we've touched on a few details now about sizing and, and weather sealing and battery life, but we should talk about a few of them. I, I know for me personally, at least the battery life angle is the one largest um, downside to adopting a mirrorless system in general. And it's something that was brought to the forefront of my mind um, recently when I did a shoot where I went back to using um, a Canon DSLR. I was, I was shooting on a 5D Mark III and I was... I had this like latent battery anxiety in the back of my mind thinking, oh my goodness, I need to have my spare battery ready. Is it charged? Uh, da, da, da. And I made it through like so many, like hundreds of shots and it was just fine. And that's something that you're just not used to in the mirrorless realm because most batteries for most mirrorless bodies these days will get you, you know, somewhere in the realm of like 300, 350 shots tops if, you know, if you're shooting the way that they want you to. And and that's really, it, for, for many professional workflows, that's just not a practical battery life. Like you end up carrying um, a whole bunch of spare batteries and yes, they're small. And yes, it's not like the biggest thing in the world to have to pause and, and switch out a battery. Right. But it's also an entire process that's totally unnecessary and an entire level of anxiety that's completely absent from most DSLR workflows. And to me, that's the thing that I feel most keenly um, when comparing these two mechanisms for for camera design it's just like i wish that they would improve battery life and it's understand because again this is the, the fact that you're seeing what the sensor is seeing and you've got like effectively two screens working at any given time it's either the evf or the lcd on the back like you're always there's a lot of stuff happening there's a lot more technical um uh, like there's more things that require power on a mirrorless camera uh but also battery technology has improved. And, and in a lot of cases, um, there's a compatibility problem that is, uh, I think, a struggle. And I know that um, Fuji actually publicly stated that they, they had this discussion when uh, designing the X-Pro2 because they were trying to decide, does it make sense for us to introduce a new higher capacity battery and make everyone who's already invested into, you know, like seven or eight spare batteries, do we make their investment useless or do we keep the same battery you know accept that it's going to have less battery life um and but you know keep customers existing customers who are upgrading happy because they can use the same batteries that they've already bought for their existing systems and they they obviously chose to keep the same battery this is one area where i think they made the wrong call um i really would have liked to see a brand new battery with higher capacity and yes it's a little bit of a pain point if you've already bought into the system and you've got a bunch of spare batteries, but like just sell them. Like honestly, it's not the end of the world and it would have been so much more useful to have better battery life. Right. And Sony's made the same error. They've they've kept the ancient uh, battery model that they've used for years on the on the A7 series cameras, even the second generation bodies, which are bigger and 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 de they definitely have space for a bigger battery in them. And they chose not to use them. Uh, and this this is an area where they they've already uh, run up against a, a ceiling, you know, as far as power consumption goes. Because even the A7R2 camera, it, it it ships with two batteries, which is right there an, an admission of guilt. I didn't actually know that. That's wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the A7R2 ships with two batteries, and that's ridiculous. I mean, maybe you should have gone with a bigger battery to begin with. I don't know. So. And, and on the other hand, you have Olympus, which is, uh, I think it, it, they have like a few different battery models. And uh, for example, the OMD bodies, the I think the EM5 Mark II, the EM5, uh, the original EM5, and the EM1, 
they all use the same battery, but then the EM10 models use a different one, which is slightly smaller. That's right. I, it was so annoying always having to carry around two battery chargers. Right. And again, it's not because the EM10's body is substantially smaller than the other ones and that the battery from the other ones wouldn't have fit in the EM10's body. That's not the case at all. They definitely could have made the the old battery fit, but they chose not to because, I don't know, maybe that differentiates the tier of the, the EM10's, you know, as a consumer body and it gives you a clear differentiation of which camera is the better one to get, or I don't know. I, I, I don't understand. I think the convenience of having the same battery operate in all cameras, I think would have definitely been uh, better for consumers and for Olympus themselves as well. But So what's a reasonable shot count for a DSLR camera? Um, let's say a 5D Mark III from Canon. What, what can you expect from a battery? I think easily about a thousand shots right oh my gosh three to four times more. yeah yeah give or take a hundred or two hundred but yeah it's it's around a thousand um and that's like again it's it's not like a, a slight improvement it's not this sort of tiny thing like it's a, a significant um improvement over any mirrorless system like i don't i don't think there's any mirrorless body right now that can push out more than 500 shots per battery yeah right, so being conservative we could definitely say that it's at least twice the battery life yeah for a typical DSLR than a, than a mirrorless camera. And the thing is that uh, battery life in mirrorless cameras varies dramatically depending on usage. If you use the viewfinder a lot as opposed to the rear LCD screen, or if you have it on at all times, even though you're not shooting, you're, you're draining the battery constantly, which is something that doesn't happen on a DSLR. The DSLR only consumes power when you're actually firing the shooter or, or using the light meter to read the scene and, and those kinds of, you know, very well-defined moments, but it's it's mostly idle as far as power draw goes. In other words, it's not just a matter of battery life, it's also battery predictability. Like, you, exactly. you really get to understand, almost, it's funny, if you've been shooting with a DSLR system for a while, you get to the point where you kind of just know when a battery is running out without having to always be looking at the battery meter. You just know kind of, oh, I've done this many shots in this kind of setup, I'm, I'm done with this battery. Um, whereas on a mirrorless system, you often surprise yourself, or at least I do. I, I look at my battery and I'm like, oh, wait, I lost two whole battery bars. I have no idea how that happened or when. I, I guess I better switch out now. And by the time you, you sort of get the warning of low battery life on a DSLR, you maybe have 100 shots left. So it's not like you're going to run out of battery all of a sudden, whereas on a mirrorless camera, you perfectly can uh, be, you can be shooting uh, one moment and 10 minutes later, your battery's dead. So yeah, there's a difference there as well. This was actually a funny problem. Well, I say funny, but like morbidly funny problem that the, uh, the X100S, I think it was, it wasn't the original, it was the X100S had where the battery readout on the display was notoriously unhelpful in the sense that it would like go down to two bars and then at some point your battery would just die and you like it was always very unclear where you were in terms of battery life and that's awful like that's just a very bad um user experience when you're shooting like you've got three battery bars and the camera can die when you've lost one like it's just th that whole thing has to go away before um a lot of professionals, I think, are going to feel comfortable adopting this for serious workflows and even just long workflows. Like I'm thinking of wedding photographers and other folks who are out shooting literally all day. Um, 
I, it, it's just not practical for them to have a backpack full of batteries with them all the time. Like they have enough other stuff to carry around and maneuver around people without, it's just, yeah, battery life, man. It's got to get better. Right, right. So we've touched on size and weight. We've touched on battery life. Uh, I think another aspect of DSLRs that is still uh, vastly improved over mirrorless cameras is their general uh, raggedness. Of the, of the camera bodies and the lenses, for example, in terms of weather sealing, of the, their ability to just keep firing shot after shot regardless of the conditions you're in. And this is one of those aspects where mirrorless cameras are making great improvements in recent years, uh, but it's there's still a substantial different difference, I would say. And so if you're, a let's say, a journalist who needs to go out on, uh, you know, on a war zone or or under the rain to document uh, a civil protest or whatever. This is very important. This is going to make a difference between getting the shot or not getting the shot. And you simply can't afford to have a camera fail on you on a critical moment. And for, for that type of usage, today, DSLRs are still, I would say, the way to go. Uh, we don't know how long that's going to uh, remain the case, but for now, it absolutely is. I always get a kick out of Kai uh, Kai on Digital Rev TV. How like they've they've put DSLRs under extreme tests. Like they've, I don't, know, I think I've seen one where they put like a blowtorch on the DSLR and it came out and it's still working. Like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like I, I know that in this discussion there's a, a big gap in the ruggedness and a lot of people are saying like you know you can find stress tests where it's like oh I threw my DSLR out of a plane and blah blah blah. Um, but I think it's important to mention that there are also very real world, um, like consumer level concerns where the DSLR's ruggedness comes in handy. And one that comes to mind for me is if you live in a tropical place, your camera is exposed to a lot more humidity in general, not just when it's raining, just sort of ambient air humidity versus, you know, like us in Canada here where we are always drying out basically. Yeah, but the cold is a problem too, right? The, the cold is another one that I was getting, but yeah, so the, there are scenarios where you actually run into these kinds of environmental stress factors without going to like a war zone or, or having some sort of crazy shooting situation. It's just like, that's what life is like in your part of the world. Right. And if your camera is not sufficiently sealed against that, then it's a bad choice for you. And it sucks because if you want a Sony system or you want um, a Fuji system or whatever it is, and it's not rated to survive that kind of uh, those kinds of conditions, then you're you're basically stuck without a choice, even though you might want one, because you have to right. you have to keep in mind the environmental factors where you live. So it's just because I, I know that the discussion is always like, oh yeah, if you're a war photographer or something like that, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be so extreme for you to take advantage of these benefits and in some cases require them. Right, exactly. Even in Spain, for example, where the summers are pretty hot, uh, we can get easily over 40 degrees in the summer in most cities. So yeah, you just imagine you go downstairs to the bar with your camera and some jackass throws the beer on your camera. That's yeah, that's that's terrible. Totally walking into a bar with with your DSLR camera. And leaving right. it on the bar. You need to be, you need to be protected, <laughs> of course. What's uh, like, um, Marius, you've shot more with DSLR than I have. Um, if you're using a weather sealed DSLR, what's the lowest temperatures that they generally say that you can use them in? Like I'm middle of Manitoba, I'm complaining about Canadian weather again, but it is a normal thing to hit minus 30 Celsius outside and then add wind chill on top of that. So any mirrorless camera that I have, like 
they're weather sealed, but they're only, you know, freeze proof down to like minus 10 Celsius or something like that. Yeah, I don't actually know the specific figures, and I think it might vary from from body to body and manufacturer to manufacturer. Like I know that Canon's One DX series, for instance, is is ridiculously rugged. Um, so I, I would expect that they would have no problems, okay. uh, even in an Arctic um, temperature right. set. I mean, if with proper shooting discipline and everything. But I know that for me, I have shot with a Canon Five D Mark II, and so obviously the Five D Mark III is going to be even better in like harsh Canadian winter and it was fine like it, it's absolutely no problem whatsoever um and i know that in a similar situation my x100t starts to uh starts to slow down and get a little lazy and my iphone shuts off entirely just gives up um so again these are these are things that i've encountered um in minus 30 i would have absolutely no concerns taking any modern you know dslr out to shoot like it just i would expect that it would survive just fine, and most of them would. Whereas a mirrorless system, I probably wouldn't. Right, and at the end of the day, people are shooting images in Antarctica with these cameras, with DSLRs, right? Like, there are colder places than the middle of Canada. Although it doesn't feel like <laughs> so, it sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, but... But I wonder how they do to, to actually protect the battery, for example, from the effects of the cold. That seems like a very difficult thing to do. Maybe they just hold them close to their body and then pop them in or there are techniques actually um i don't remember where i was reading but there you know if you if you hold the battery in your hand until you need it like keep it in your glove right and that kind of thing it can prolong the battery life either way you're getting less battery life than you would in normal temperatures but again if you're going from a battery that gives you 1000 shots even if that's diminished to 600 you're still right <laughs> you're still doing better than if you had uh, a mirrorless system for you know, even setting aside the temperature thing. So, you know, there are, there are ways to work around the cold. And I think shooting in extreme conditions is a whole subject onto itself. Right. No question. But yeah, for, for, for DSLR systems, I think if you're doing that kind of work or things like wildlife or, um, or landscape photography in extreme environments, then even if you want to use a mirrorless system, you might be forced by the conditions to buy into a DSLR system. Interesting. What about autofocus? Yeah, let's talk about autofocus a little bit. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask a question uh, to you, Marius, because there's this notion that DSLRs have uh, much better autofocus or much more accurate autofocus than mirrorless cameras. And that's, for the most part, that has been true uh, in recent years. Uh, but now I think things are starting to change because uh, it is now possible for mirrorless uh, cameras to include face detection autofocus in their sensors, which is something that wasn't uh, possible before. And the face detection autofocus is what makes the DSLR be much much faster and much accurate, much more accurate uh, than contrast detection autofocus. That is what mirrorless cameras used to use, uh, you know, a few years ago. So we're starting to see a change there, but I think it's there's still uh, a noticeable difference and DSLRs for the most part are still better. But I wanted to ask you about, because um, you've recently reviewed Fuji's latest camera, which is the X-Pro2. Yep. And I wonder, because you would assume that this camera would have uh, the, you know, the latest and greatest uh, autofocus system that Fuji knows how to make. So that, that's, what I, that's what I'm curious about. How did you feel uh, about the autofocus performance of the X-Pro2? Because you've also uh, shot recently with a Canon DSLR, so you've had a chance to get a feel for both, and and I'm curious about the difference there. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because for me, when you talk about autofocus, there are two actual branches. Um, one of them is autofocus speed, and the other one is autofocus accuracy and reliability. And that's yeah, absolutely that's where um, I think the the differences become more stark is when you break it down that way. So as far as speed goes, I think mirrorless has largely caught up to um, most DSLRs. I say most because you've got outliers like the 1DX Mark II and the uh, Nikon D5, which are just insanely quick. And they're optimized for speed. I mean, that's that's what those cameras are built for. Right. So I would expect that they are faster. But I think if you're comparing um, the best of the mirrorless systems to you know the, the general um, DSLR world, so even things like the 5D Mark III and the Nikon D810s and things like that, um, I, I think you'll find that the speed has... Um, pretty much been matched, um, especially with cameras like the uh, Sony's A6300. And, uh, you know, again, cameras where, where speed was was a, a prime factor for autofocus, that's that's fine. But where DSLRs continue to pull ahead, and again, this is something that is just demonstrably true for now, is if you're shooting bursts and you need to keep each shot in focus as you're doing this, um, I have yet to encounter a mirrorless system that does it as reliably as your average good DSLR, like a, a Canon 7D or something like that will, uh, especially the Mark II, will do a lot better at tracking focus and at um, understanding focus problems in complicated setups with, uh, uh, it, it's just, it. I trust it more than I trust mirrorless systems right now. Because again, they tend to lock in pretty quick, but they don't have the same level of intelligence um, as far as holding on to that autofocus lock. So for me, that's where the gap exists. Right. Same experience here recently. Yeah, that's also a gap that honestly is not one you encounter very much depending on the kind of shooting that you do. Like obviously if you're doing sports or wildlife shooting, bursts are crucial and then that's important to you. But if you're shooting um, street photography or you're shooting uh, studio work or things like that, like burst autofocus performance is really not something you are encountering as frequently. And this, this is where for some workflows, you can be totally fine with the current mirrorless autofocus performance. Right. And do you think that's solely due to the difference between the face detection and the contrast detection? Or is, is there something about the mirror particularly that helps DSLRs be better at this? No. And I think this is where you touched on this earlier, where there's a difference between where there currently is a gap and where there's a technical reason why DSLRs will always be better. And I, I don't think that there is one um, in the autofocus realm. And even though... Canon we've seen recently with the 70D and the 80D, they've got a new uh, dual pixel autofocus technology that uh, Samsung also recently borrowed for the S7 um, smartphone camera. That's even quicker um, and it's great. But again, there's no there's no reason that that technology can't exist in a mirrorless setup. And all of these, all of this will be normalized eventually. Like the, the autofocus performance will catch up on the mirrorless side. And then that's just one more thing that, um, that DSLRs will not be able to hold over. I think experience is probably why the DSLR makers still have an edge in certain aspects of autofocus performance because they've been doing it for a long time. Right. Um, whereas, and I, and I think, again, this is where initial lock speed is easier to accomplish than long-term burst accuracy and reliability. And that's where, um, that's where Canon and Nikon just have decades of experience working on these systems and Sony and the rest of them are still 
learning their way around how to optimize for those kinds of shooting scenarios. And they're using a different camera technology, so they can't really lean on the experience of their predecessors. Right. Um, but again, that's something that will, that's a, that's a gap that I expect to close and close quickly because each new set of um, mirrorless bodies that comes out is like incredibly quick and, and makes meaningful strides in autofocus performance. So it's it's only a matter of time from my perspective. Right. Let's talk about another factor that is there, uh, that is a product of that experience that you were mentioning, which is the lens ecosystem for, for each system, for each technology. I think, no, but, I mean, it's pretty clear by now that both the, 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 the main... Uh, and the main DSLR makers, which are Canon and Nikon, have incredible lens ecosystems. There's just a ton of options for every possible uh, type of lens, for every possible focal length. Uh, pretty much whatever your needs are, you're going to be able to find an excellent piece of glass that's going to get you um, everything you need. So as far as that as far as that goes, those guys have it covered like incredibly well. And mirrorless systems. Are growing incredibly quick. They're 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 doing very well in filling the gaps in in just a few years, but there's still a way to go for them for most of them. I mean, they're they are still uh, a little bit behind, I would say at least. Especially if you have like very very specific, very niche needs in your photography. If you're just a general user, you're going to be fine with pretty much any camera system out there today. But if you have like if you need tilt shift lenses for architectural photography, for example, or if you need super long telephoto lenses for wildlife or even for astrophotography, these are areas that DSLR makers have um, have covered, and 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 there are excellent options available. I always get a kick. I always get a kick out of uh, like if there's a, a lens, it's going to be an L lens in the ca Canon system, no matter what focal length, no matter what range, no matter what zoom range, like there's always an L lens, be it an F2.8 or an F4. But that would be like having an Olympus Pro le zoom lens for any single focal range or prime telephoto length or you know what I mean? Like no matter what, there's always an L, an L glass, uh, an L lens for you in the Canon system. Exactly. And this is where time plays a, a critical role. I mean, Maybe ten years from now, from now, the situation, the the landscape will have uh, evened. We will have evened out completely, and there will be no difference between manufacturers as far as the number of options available. But right now, there is, and and it's important. And for for many people, that will actually be the main selling point of a given system. We've been talking a lot about cameras so far, and we have barely considered the lenses. But actually, I would say that. The lens, the lenses are the primary factor uh, for choosing one system over another, or at least they should be, because camera bodies come and go. But lenses are long-term investments, and you're going to commit to a system for a decade or more if you if you're spending that kind of money. So it, it kind of makes sense to to focus about that a little bit. Yeah, and there's also uh, one of the things that um, kind of makes this easier for for mirrorless users is that right now there tends to be a really good um, set of options for adapting lenses to your system even if they're not originally there like especially for for you guys shooting sony there are a lot of adapters that let you use um leica m glass and um even autofocus leica m glass isn't that crazy exactly right exactly <laughs> and but but alvaro's right i mean i think it, as far as native lenses that are missing from the lineup it's really the the weirdo outlier ones like the tilt shift lenses and for something like that i wouldn't mind adapting it because chances are i'm not shooting with a tilt shift 
uh, trying to like catch motion quickly, right? So even if it doesn't have very good autofocus uh, abilities, like that's that's okay with me. Like that would not bother me. Um, and honestly, in some cases, it's just you're uh, as you're transitioning through systems, um, you want to bring some of the glass with you, and and you can, which is I think a big advantage, uh, especially if uh, again if you're if you're shooting Sony, and I forget which is it the Metabones adapter that that gives you guys such good. Um, autofocus translation from from canon's mount for instance right i think it was that one yeah it is anyway but yeah, that's that would be a huge selling factor for me because then i could say well i've invested you know fifteen thousand dollars or however much it might be uh, as a professional in lenses and i don't have to worry about selling those to transition over i might sell a couple of them because i like the sony version better but i can keep the ones that i love and just buy this adapter and suddenly i'm i'm, I'm in business i just have to replace the body and that's that's great like the fact that they have manage to make that a possibility is is an amazing selling point yeah definitely although in, in its current state i still would consider it a sort of a stopgap solution you know because there are lenses that are missing in for example in sony's lineup but if there is a native lens i think uh, it's always going to be better to go with the native with the native version even if it's not as good optically because because overall performance is going to be a lot better the the every everything about the lens is just going to work better and the adapters are a little hacky in the way that they're made because they don't have access to uh, the focus algorithm that the camera manufa manufacturer uses to implement you know their autofocus system right so they're just kind of reverse engineer uh, their adapter to make it work with uh, Canon's lens lineup for example and Sony's uh, AF technology yeah so there are a lot of moving parts there and it's not always as seamless as you would like yeah I just I think that the possibility is good and like you said it might be a transitional thing but even so that's a that's a valuable uh, that's a valuable thing to have because yeah definitely it's something that didn't really exist to the same extent going from Canon to Nikon for instance or, or something like that I mean they, they exist but it's not really I, I feel like adapters right now are a much more um, healthy and vibrant market going from mirrorless system to dslr and vice versa definitely and mirrorless system to mirrorless system as well so it's just that's a whole new world as well right and but the the use case for which i think adapters are great is exactly what you said which is i'm i'm switching systems and i'm bringing some of the glass along to the new system and that and that's great that's a that's what i would recommend people do but i wouldn't necessarily recommend going with an adapted lens you know if you're buying a lens from scratch for example if you want to buy a 35 millimeter lens for your Sony camera uh, the Sigma lens is great and the Canon lens is great uh, but I wouldn't recommend you buy it uh, buy it from scratch to use it on your Sony camera I would always recommend you buy a Sony lens first and that's that's kind of the difference that I wanted to point out so it's okay if you're transitioning systems and you want to reuse some of the glass that you already own but I wouldn't recommend buying new glass uh, you know, to use with adapters if there's a native option available. Yeah, I think that's probably good advice. Um, yeah. How about price? Tell me about price. Because at the end of the day, a lot of this kind of stuff comes down to how much money you're willing to spend on these things. And I know that DSLR systems um, are, like you look at the newest EOS 1DX Mark II, it's another lots of, uh, of uh, letters and numbers in there. But anyway, Canon's latest flagship DSLR is six thousand American dollars, but I mean, you know, having said that, Sony's A7R2 is a good four thousand dollars as well. So, right, um, where are we at there? 
Well, I think it's important to to make the distinction that in the DSLR world, you have two very differentiated categories, which is the sort of consumer level DSLR, and you can find pretty good cameras for about 500 bucks that come with a with a kit lens and so on. Uh, but once you start talking about full-frame DSLRs, uh, like the Canon 5D Mark III, for example, which is the current flagship for, for Canon users, and has been so uh, for a few years already, uh, that's a very expensive camera. But I think that's there's a very good reason for that. It, that it's that Canon sells and markets these as tools for professional photographers, for working photographers, and those are priced accordingly. Why is that the case? Because... Uh, for a photographer that earns uh, the majority of their income from from their work, from their photography work, the, the amount of money that you spend on gear and on tools is very easily justifiable. So they can usually uh, get away with charging more for this type of, of camera and for, for the L lenses, uh, for example. And part of that is that those high-end uh, pieces of glass and those high-end cameras then carry a whole host of benefits with them. And we're going to talk about that in more detail later, but I'm talking about the whole professional support that Canon gives these professional users. And that's something that costs a lot of money. So I, I in a way, I understand why they feel like they need to charge more. It's not just for that, because they could, they could easily uh, absorb some of the costs themselves. And they, it, it's not like they need to charge as much as they do. But they can get away with doing that because they know that their clients are mostly professional photographers and they look at this as an investment that's going to pay out over time. You know, that's going to... You can also say that because the DSLR industry is so experienced, you could also say that, you know, like your money is kind of depreciated, if you will, over a longer period of time. Like even the, uh, you know, sorry, the the 5D Mark II, which is like an eight to 10 year old camera already, correct? Like it still goes for a couple thousand dollars used and it still works really, really well for a, a large majority of professional users. And I've got a friend or two that are wedding photographers who shoot exclusively on the Mark II because they haven't found an, a huge need to upgrade at this point. Um, but like imagine using an eight-year-old mirrorless camera. Right. Um, and you can you can probably find it a little bit cheaper if you look really, really thoroughly on the internet. You can probably find a better deal. But yeah, the... the the point is that they retain their value a lot better than other types of technology. And that, to some extent, that's true for the camera bodies, but it's especially true for the lenses. The lenses barely depreciate at all, even over periods of five to ten years. You can probably sell a used Canon L lens that's seven years old for about 60 to 70% of the price you paid for it. So that's that's incredible. And that goes to show that these are uh, yeah, long-term investments and they are designed that way they are they are built to last uh, for decades i i really hope that this price thing comes down like i look at I, I shoot a sony camera and you know the newest gm lenses i've got my eye on them i'm constantly like lusting after them even though i've got some really impressive lenses uh, on the side um but like they're very highly priced and i'm the only thing is you know hindsight will tell us but um if we're going to spend that kind of money because they're worth the up front their their suggested prices are far higher than Canon's L glass not far higher but higher um, 
so those lenses, like they better last that 10 year time frame that, that Sony shooters are expecting. And it looks like they're designed that way. Right. But it's hard to know, right, to put that money down now. Right. And they don't have the story to back it up, you know, to back the claim. Exactly. Up. So we'll see. We'll find out. A huge, a huge check mark for the DSLR group, in my opinion, is the longevity of these things. And I mean, the price, yes, it does match, but the price is matched to the longevity. And therefore, it's far easier to stomach when when you know that this is going to be around for so long. Exactly. And there's a component of, you know, economies of scale when you talk about price, because the volume that Canon and Nikon reach is just astounding. It's a, it's much bigger than anything Sony can, can currently do. So it, it kind of makes sense that Canon and Nikon can get away with charging a little bit less for their for their high-end lenses, whereas Sony needs to, uh, you know, they, they need to price their lenses uh, higher because they they know they're not going to make it up in volume and that's very important too also there's a there's a, an aspect when you're talking about price which is that people complain especially with sony cameras that there are not many uh, affordable lenses for their high-end cameras and that's true uh, even though we've now seen a new 50 millimeter lens which is going to be priced at 250 uh, 250 us dollars and that's going to be the cheapest lens available for the A7 series cameras. But it's still more than double uh, what the equivalent lens for the Canon system uh, costs. Unreal. Right? So that's, that's, it is a huge difference. And that, that's kind of, it's a complicated issue to overcome because the problem here is that Canon and Nikon are reaping the benefits of their decades-long investment in designing lenses for the film era. Right, I mean, most of the Canon L lenses today are fairly old. Uh, many of them were designed when the the the, the technology, the, the more popular technology, was still film. And and the the difference that we are seeing now with digital photography is that full frame cameras with digital sensors are incredibly expensive because the sensor itself is very expensive. But when you were talking about the film era, there were lots of consumer-level cameras that that used 35mm film, uh, and there needed to be lenses for those users. If you spend $200 on a camera, you're not going to spend upwards of $1,000 on a lens. So Canon and Nikon were forced back then to develop cheap lenses that were still able to cover the entire frame of a 35mm film, and, and they have all of that work that they did decades ago is paying off now and they are able to offer a lot cheaper lenses that are still full frame like the Canon 85mm f1.8 which is a fantastic portrait lens for example uh, there's nothing like that for the for the mirrorless uh, in the mirrorless world especially on, on in the full frame mirrorless world and i don't think we're ever going to see it because sony knows that their customers have already paid over a thousand dollars for the camera so there's no point in designing a lot of cheap lenses for those users those are clearly people who are willing to pay more for their gear and sony understandably wants to make lenses that are more profitable so there's a huge difference there yep you'd think in the long run though they would have to price lower lenses in the long run they're just they're gonna you know suck the professional market dry at one point or another and they're gonna have to expand at the lower level right but i don't know there's a huge future there as, uh, as long as sensors uh, stay expensive and making a full frame sensor is very expensive today. 
as long as they don't, they're, they're not able to bring the cost of the sensor down and they're not able to manufacture a full-frame camera at the, I would say, $400, $500 price point, I think that's going to remain unlikely. If they manage to hit that price point, then yeah, definitely, they're going to have to start making lenses for that new profile of user that those cameras are going to attract. So it's all... Uh, it, it, of course, technology... Uh, as it evolves, the costs go way down, and we might start seeing more affordable sensors, you know, a few years from now. But uh, until that happens, I think uh, I don't think we're going to see much changes in, in this in this aspect. If I'm a consumer now and I'm looking at cost as a factor between choosing a DSLR and mirrorless, um, it, it, I'm still kind of confused as to which one comes out on top, because on the one hand, you've got the healthier lens ecosystem of a Canon or a Nikon. But as far as making an investment, like let's say I'm putting $5,000 into a camera system, is a DSLR system or a mirrorless system going to give me more bang for my buck? I think at the professional level, DSLRs are where, it, that's where DSLRs remain the most competitive. But at the consumer level, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it pretty much anyone to buy a DSLR today. That's because that's just, you get a much better bang for your buck at the $500 price point by buying a mirrorless camera than you do by buying a DSLR, I would say. Right. Yeah, I think I agree with that at this point. And that's that's the recommendation that I tend to make, at least when, when people ask me this question, is generally, generally they'll come to you with the expectation that as they're buying a better camera, it has to be a DSLR. And then you've got to kind of figure out why they think that and whether or not that's actually applicable to their situation. Um, and in many cases, it just, it, it isn't. Um, they, they sort of have this this concept in their mind that professionals use DSLRs and that if they want to take professional images, they need a DSLR to do it. And that, you know, that may have been the case at some point, but it's, I certainly don't think it is uh, today. Right. And a very important uh, thing that we haven't mentioned is that even basic mirrorless cameras have a whole host of uh, commodity features, if you will, like Wi-Fi and tilt LCD screens, in many cases even touch LCD screens. And those are features that are not always there in in DSLRs. So that's a that that kind of those kinds of features are going to be very appreciated by by consumers and people who are getting started into photography because they make your life a lot easier. And professionals may may be able to sort of brush that aside as a gimmick feature or whatever because their workflow is already very well established and it doesn't rely on those features so they're not going to be using them for the most part but consumers will and they will appreciate them so that's why i was uh, saying that I, in my mind you get a better a better bang for your buck by going with a mirrorless camera and that's also the fact that dslrs are refreshed and updated a lot less frequently than mirrorless cameras. So if you were to spend the same amount uh, on a Canon DSLR today, let's say $600, you would probably get a two, three, maybe even four-year-old camera with a four-year-old sensor in them. Uh, whereas if you buy a, a mirrorless camera, you can buy for that price a pretty good mirrorless camera that is less than a year old. And advancements in sensor technology in that in that kind of time are significant. They may not be like night and day, but they are significant. And so, yeah, in my mind, it's just a better investment. Once you go up to the to the higher level, the the professional segment, that things gets things get a little 
uh, a little more difficult to to assess at that level because there are especially yeah. when you consider professionals are going to use that support network right that you talked about earlier because there's a big bang for your buck right yeah if there is a deal breaker for professional photographers when it comes to choosing a system it's definitely that one i i i'm absolutely convinced that many professional shooters are willing to sacrifice on battery life or or, or on some of the other uh, things we've talked about but when it's when it comes to support that's a deal breaker right there because you absolutely need uh, to know that your your camera manufacturer is going to honor the warranty of and is going to provide uh, timely support when you need it because you don't have time to lose when you're when you're working right we just saw this with with Matt Granger like he's a pretty popular um, photographer online he's done a bunch of courses and he recently sometime middle of March early March had said that he's dropping Sony's e-mount uh, from his kit because it took something like six weeks to get his camera um, serviced and his Nikon camera was done in three days so when he, he said that when he's traveling all over the world he, he needs to have his his camera gear his kit with him and even though the Sony product might be better in the long run and he really enjoys using it he says he just can't justify it so I, I think that was a it's a really big shot there uh, when such a uh, such a popular photographer flat out states that he can't deal with the support network. Exactly. As good as the camera may be, if it's not dependable, you, you can't use it for work. That's, that was his point, and he's absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree more, really. And to Sony's credit, they they have announced since then a brand new you know, pro-oriented support network, and it's still very early to see how well that will work, but it looks promising, so we'll have to just wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, if you can get your name in there somehow. I don't know how, like, so would you go to buy like two cameras or five different Sony products plus, you know, spend the yearly fee and then got to be invited and oh my gosh. Yeah, I think the criteria are a little silly right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's similar for all of them, really, for all the manufacturers. So it might be a little bit more, uh, you know, strict for Sony because it's newer and they have more costs to absorb in the, in the near term, but... But yeah, for Canon, it's like you also need to own like two full frame cameras or something like that. So we're talking about clearly pro people. So but that's my goal one day, guys. I'm going to have enough kit to justify the professional support network. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I might never use it. I'm never going to pull it outside and take a shot with it, but I'm going to have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the final frontier. Um, honestly, as far as mirrorless, is, uh, mirrorless systems taking over uh, where DSLRs um, currently hold reign for professionals is is that support network because it's just like you said, Alvaro, not only is it a deal breaker, but it's um, th the fact that you can get a replacement, like a loaner camera from the manufacturer while they're repairing yours and things like that. It's just, there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with that. And it's kind of like a the, the warranty situation, except more hands-on and more direct. And, you know, you get some sensor cleanings and uh, even just knowing that there's a phone number you can call if something is up. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing um, for any professional. Um, and I think right now Sony has has announced theirs. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, if Fuji is going to do the same, uh, if Olympus is going to do the same. But it's difficult, and I think this is where, um, this is where the 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 sheer weight of the scale of these companies um, has a has a huge impact on what they can offer because um, Canon and Nikon are are gigantic enough that they're able to offer this kind of support network. Sony is a huge company, but its imaging division is you know, relatively small 
So it's only now getting to the point where I think they can justify having this. I'm not sure that Fuji can at all. I'm not sure that Olympus can at all. And it's it's unfortunate, but it's also a reality of um, how that kind of business works. Like it's a very expensive service to provide. Um, is it worth it? Absolutely. But it's also uh, from a, from their perspective as a business de- decision, it's difficult because it's it's a it requires a big upfront investment, and you're not really sure how much it will impact a professional uptake of your cameras. Because if that's not happening, like if it's you know your support network is not encouraging more people to adopt your system at a professional level then it's not worth the investment basically and it's you know you've got to just swallow the rest of us whining about it and there's no way to know that until you take the plunge exactly exactly and i think fuji fuji is on the verge of really starting to needing needing to do it you know because they they are popular among many professional photographers so if if there's a company that is close to having to make that difficult choice i think i think it's them uh, olympus i would say is i i'm not hoping them to i'm not hoping they do it anytime soon because the recent signs that we we've seen from them are discouraging they used to have worldwide warranties for all their products uh, at least the lenses and i believe it was last year they stopped doing that and they started uh, issuing just a different warranty on each country. So you can't get, if you're traveling, you can't get your Olympus lens serviced um, while you're away. Yeah, that's a shame. And that's too bad. So they're moving in the opposite direction. But I would say that it's that's also understandable because the entire Micro Four Thirds system is the the one that's, uh, that I think is going to arrive last at that professional level uh, at having to deal with those with those issues. So do guys, do we want to top this conversation off with kind of a, you know, like a, a candid recommendation? Who is a mirrorless camera system for and who is a DSLR camera system for? Or is that kind of like putting our thumbs down a little bit too hard on something? Well, uh, I think it depends a whole lot. I, I, I don't know. It depends on the person. I don't know that I have a general answer to, to that. Okay. Um, I would say the vast majority of people, unless you know you're a professional photographer and you're committed to being a professional photographer for the next 15 years, um, I think the majority of people will be better served by going mirrorless today, as things stand today. Because if you're a pro and you need a DSLR, chances are you already know it. So for the type of person that's likely to ask themselves that question, I would say take a good look at the different mirrorless options. And, And if there's nothing there that can satisfy all of your needs, then by all means just consider a DSLR. But... Uh, I would encourage people to start looking at the mirrorless options first and try to get rid of that whole notion that DSLRs are the only real serious cameras. And they're, I think that kind of idea is outdated already. And we need to start thinking, um, looking forward and thinking about the future instead of, instead of being worried about the past. Marius, any thoughts? Yeah, I don't think I could have said it better myself. That's yeah, I know. I Alvaro just said it. If if you if you can't clearly articulate why you need a DSLR, you probably don't. Uh, and that's that's really all there is to say on it for for most people because the the two technologies each have their strengths, and we could go into specific scenarios where one might still reign supreme. But ultimately, that has more to do with the individual photographer and their preferences and their specific shooting needs rather than any overarching um, you know objective truth about the two. 
So it's yeah, start start with mirrorless and end up at DSLR if you aren't satisfied. I think is probably the best workflow. I just I want to like speaking of you know professional images coming from not just DSLRs. I, I it occurs to me that one of my favorite images that I've seen in the past couple of years which is the, um, I forget which award it won, but it's the one with the whales underwater. Right. Uh, you know, the beautiful black and white shot that, that made the news um, recently. We'll, oh, beautiful. Yep, I remember that one. We'll link it in the show notes. That was shot on a Sony RX100 Mark III, which is like a tiny one-inch sensor little pocket camera in an underwater housing. Right. So, it, I mean, it's obviously you can always find examples of people taking better photos than yours with worse equipment. But my point is, what constitutes a professional image has a lot more to do with the photographer than the camera and obsessing over mirrorless versus DSLR is probably not the best use of your time if you want to start taking images like those. Exactly. So we basically wasted an hour of our time so you don't have to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>